everybody. This is the 17th episode of the Red Sox Unfiltered Podcast. I am your host, Patrick Green, and we got an amazing show here for you guys today. Uh, joining me, as always, is my host, Dave Latham. Dave, say hi to everybody. Hey, everyone. How's it going? And unfortunately, our third companion, Jordan DeCoe, will not be joining us. He is actually shipping up to Boston from California. So he will not be here today, but we wish him luck in his move, and we cannot wait for him to come back next week. Um, but Dave, we got a lot of good baseball to talk about. We had an exciting week of week of action. It started off with a lot of delays, um, a lot of rain delays, the Orioles-Red Sox series. I think both games Monday and Tuesday went into some sort of uh, hiatus from the game um, because of rain, because of torrential weather. And then Wednesday's game, they played two innings. Got a couple dingers, Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez, all one yard, and I think Adrian Bennett did one yard too. Uh, there were definitely three, and then that game had to be canceled altogether. That kind of sucked, but um, then they had a series this weekend. It was a four-game set against the Minnesota Twins. Started on Thursday, concluded on Sunday, and that's what we're really going to talk about today, and we're just going to break that down by game. So it's going to go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, starting with Thursday, that was the only game the Red Sox lost that series. It was a 2-1 to one loss to Minnesota. Uh, Brian Johnson pitched in that game. He went five and two-thirds innings, zero earned runs, five strikeouts, and three walks. They almost made a comeback at the end. It was a really sad bases-loaded strikeout, courtesy of JBJ. Fernando Rodney was charmingly erratic, per usual. Uh, he walked a bunch of batters, and the Red Sox had some life, but... JBJ could not come clutch, but it's okay. He came up clutch plenty of times this weekend to compensate. Uh, Dave, what did you see from that game that you wanted to talk about? Uh, the thing I saw from that game the most was basically a lot of people on the Twitterverse overreacting to Barnes and Kimbrell giving up runs because entering the eighth, I believe it was a one nothing game, and then uh, Barnes gave up a run. Kimbrell went for a four-out save, and uh, he gave up another, I believe. Um, but anyway, the point I want to make with that is, like, guys, this bullpen is fine. It could use another arm, but they have the sixth-best ERA, bullpen ERA in baseball. The unit's fine as is. Like, I know it sucks losing a game that late, but it just happens. It's a 162-game sample. Sometimes things go wrong. It is what it is. Yeah, it's a 162 grind, not a one-day uh, one thing. But, yeah, um, the bullpen was not awesome this weekend, I guess. And we'll be talking about that because it's kind of like a trade deadline episode because that's going to be on, what is that, Tuesday? Yeah, the July 31st is Tuesday. So we'll, we'll preview a lot about what the Red Sox should do in the bullpen. But in this game, I said Johnson did very well. His ERA on the season is now 345. He's got a 373 FIP. He's got an average strikeout number. It's like around 7, K per 9. Uh, his walks, this guy has got like a 3.00 walks per 9, which is exactly average. And he's been good for .7 F4. His curveball's been awesome. He's got the two uh, good breaking ball mix of a curveball slider, and then he's got his changeup to complement that, and he's got a slower fastball, but... He has a pretty good four-pitch mix. It's been working for him. But, Dave, Brian Johnson is going back to the bullpen. Uh, Drew Pomerantz will be in his place from here on out because they just acquired Voldy, so they had a spot open. Um, but BJ will not be in the rotation anymore. I think we talked about this a little bit about who should be in the rotation last week, but now that we know it's for sure it's not going to be Brian Johnson, I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't get this move at all. Johnson has just been the better pitcher all year. You mentioned his ERA, but what you didn't mention is those, that ERA, which is still pretty good, is inflated by a few bad bullpen outings. As a starter, he is a 1.8 ERA. The dude's been really like borderline unhittable. He doesn't go that deep, deep into games, but a lot of that's because for most of the season we've been using him as a reliever. He's not used to going that long, so he can't really do it. Um, I don't think this guy's ever going to win the Cy Young. I think his ceiling is a number five pitcher, but he's been a very good number five pitcher, and he should own that role moving forward. I get why you want to go back to Pomerantz. He has the higher ceiling. Last year on that 93-win team, Pomerantz was your number two pitcher on a team that won all those games primarily through its pitching staff. But Pomerantz just hasn't been the same guy this year. It's not like it's a situation where he just can't find his accuracy. He's just clearly missing something this year. His velocity across the board is down, so he yeah. needs to be almost perfect with every pitch in order to 
succeed. There's no margin for error. And frankly, a guy who's pitching like that should not be in the starting rotation. Give me Johnson over Pomerantz, and it's really not that hard to call. Yeah, and I think everyone, every Red Sox fan would agree with you. I think most beat writers would agree with you. Um, this was an interesting move. I get it because Pomerantz does have this pedigree where he has been a very good starting pitcher in the past. Last year, you, as you said, he was their second best pitcher. But Brian Johnson has just been continued to be solid. He again, he doesn't go deep, but he's been going lately. He like his last start against the Twins, which is on Thursday. He went five and two thirds innings, and he was like had a pretty low pitch count too. Like he may have been able to keep going. I think he actually they took him out because he had walked someone or something. But yeah, he'd been kind of building up that stamina. The start before he went five innings, which was the first time he had reached that in a while. And uh, yeah, he has not been great out of the bullpen. He's been a much better starter. Um, his bullpen ERA is like north of five, whereas his starting ERA is like south of three. So. This guy is just like the epitome of of just decent, and he's a quality starter. He's a hopefully a quality arm in the bullpen. I don't think that that role change should hinder him too much, although I don't know how much his stuff will play up because he is a finesse guy anyway. So, yeah, that's his game. It's not like he's going to gain a lot of velocity that's going to make a difference, uh, make a huge difference. But Brian Johnson, um, I'm sorry, buddy. We loved having you in the starting rotation. I'm sure something will come up. And you will be back, but you did very, you performed admirably. We were big fans of your work, so thank you for your service and good luck in the bullpen. Um, so this game was very uneventful in offense. Besides, I said um, the J, the ninth inning where Fernando Rodney completely fell apart, but Kyle Gibson just absolutely slaughtered the Red Sox offense, which is very hard to do because the Red Sox have a pretty dang good offense. Um, so yeah, that, that was not the fun game, but we had three other really, really exciting fun, uh, games happen this weekend. So let's, let's, let's talk about those. These are on a more cheery note cause you know, the Red Sox won. So the Friday game, the Red Sox beat the twins four to three. So, you know, another a one run victory this time. The other team, uh, Chris sale was magical. Oh my gosh. Shocker. He went six innings, zero earned runs, 10 strikeouts, and two walks. Um, but the bullpen was shaky as hell. Uh, Ryan Brazier allowed a run, and Creek Kimbrell allowed two runs in the ninth. He could not locate his fastball at all, um, and he gave up two earned runs. I think his fielding independent pitching is north of three now, so that was concerning. Um, but, you know, for all, all of that bullpen implosion and all of that kind of life that got sucked out of the momentum that was has been the Red Sox ride. Uh, they responded admirably with that Raphael Devers home run and uh, to tie the game 3-3 and to force it into extra innings where Mookie Betts hit a walk-off home run over the Green Monster. And Dave, I know you were particularly excited about the Raphael Devers moment. Um, could you talk to me about this game and Raphael Devers' heroics and Mookie Betts' heroics? Oh, yeah, so this was the one, you know, Kimbrell blew the save at the end. When it happened, I thought the game was over, and then Devers comes up to lead off the bottom of the ninth and just absolutely launches a laser. I think it was um, 112 mile an hour exit velocity. Like, it barely leaves the ground. It was like, maybe I think um, it, it, like, had no altitude at all. It was just hit on such a line and hit so hard it's able to fly over the right right field bullpen into the into the bullpen and you got a little bit of uh, the david ortiz grand slam from 2013 because the <laughs> bullpen cop was celebrating and the right fielder got killed in the process yeah so um you know obviously you don't wish injury on someone but i got a bit of deja vu endeavors it's just it's what this guy does he's not a complete major league player yet i'm not claiming that he's gonna get there but he's not there yet but what he does so amazingly to me is just every time you need a big hit he's at the plate he comes through 13 of the dude's 24 home runs in his career have either tied the game for the Sox or given them the lead. He's just great when the mat, when uh, the when they need him to be great, and he's only going to get better. He's only 21. He's got a phenomenal hit tool. He's just uh, it's just it makes me so happy to know this guy's going to be a Red Sox forever or for a very long time. Yeah, and then we'll we'll talk about his uh, disabled list stint uh, and for the, when we break down the next game. So that kind of sucked because you know it came on the heels of that those heroics by Devers. But yeah, that ball was hit just straight on a line, 
anywhere else in the ballpark besides right field. That's just going to bounce off the wall. It might, it probably wouldn't, even, eh, it would hit the monster, but that was center. It wouldn't do much, but yeah, that was a laser. I didn't see the bullpen cops celebrating, which I kind of regret. Um, I just think I was so absorbed in the moment, but yeah, Devers, that was really clutch. Cause I think Mookie Betts even said in his post game interview, like the mood was a little caught, like it was kind of not as excited. There were, it was not a great atmosphere because the bullpen had just done what it did. And then Devers, you know, tied it, just put life back into the Red Sox. And yeah, man, it was, it was awesome. But I think Tyler Thornburg actually got the win. Um, he pitched very well. He came in the 10th inning uh, at the top of the 10th. And, you know, Tyler Thornburg, we talked about him. This will be the third episode we will have talked about him. But yeah, he was doing poorly when we talked about him last week. But since then, they said they had made some sort of a mechanical adjustment with him. They said they found something. And I think he's appeared in three games since. And, man, he has been, he's been, the results have been good. So his ERA, I think, last week at this time was 10. It's now like five, which is still not good, but small sample. And he's doing very well of late. His fielding independent pitching, which is, you know, better, more predictive, especially at this stage with such a small sample. It's 3.17, which is good. He's striking out over a batter per inning. And literally, he has a 1.17 walk per nine. Dave, that is extremely low. He has not been giving up free passes. He's been doing his thing. He's been giving up a little home runs, but um, and he uses curveball a lot more often in these last few games, so he's relying on that more. He didn't even use his changeup in two of these three outings this week. Um, so that was interesting to note. Uh, Dave, do you have any comments on Tyler Thornburg and a resurgent this week? Yeah, so Thornburg, you know, we gave up a lot to get him back in 2017. He misses the whole year. He comes back, and he's a little shaky at first. And I'm not going to lie, I didn't have too much hope for him moving forward. I thought maybe he'd need, you know, a whole year to find the form that made him the Thornburg of old. I thought he could be a decent, like, you know, mid-relief arm. But, like, finding that elite bridge guy, I didn't think that he'd be there in 2018. But that mechanical fix really seems to have done it. And, I mean, we're obviously talking about a small sample size here. Three appearances, 2.1 innings. But still, he looks like a different guy. He hasn't even allowed a hit yet. And if he can be a guy that can, like, bridge the gap to Kimbrell, you know, Barnes, Thornburg, Kimbrell, that is a really good seven, eight, nine right there. So I think he can be a very key piece of this team moving forward, especially when bullpen's probably the biggest question on the roster right now. Oh, yeah, I think it is for sure. Um, what were your thoughts about Ryan Brazier? I know we talked about him last week, but he kind of showed that he was mortal this week. Has your opinion changed at him about him at all? Not really. I mean, he's a ground ball guy, he's a ground ball guy so naturally um, ground balls, they're a little more, they're a little less predictive than guys yeah. that, you know, strike out, you know, 12 in inning. You don't really know what you're going to get. I think a lot of uh, Brazier's uh, poor outing, especially, I think it was the second game against the Twins, that was mostly bad luck. Nunez forgot how to field twice. Um, Pearson, Nunez just let a ground ball go directly between them once. And then another one, Nunez basically like two hopped a fairly easy throw from second to Pearson. Uh, gave up a single one, it should have been an out. So, you know, that just, those are the kind of things that happened with a guy like that. And I didn't think Brazier was going to necessarily be, you know, a perfect, like never allow a run the rest of the year. But, you know, he's, he's a good mid-relief option. I'd still keep him up. I'd still trust him in like, you know, the sixth or seventh or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think that's roughly where we are with him right now. He's a good mid-relief arm. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable expectation for him. I think some people, and I think maybe even me last week, got a little over my own head when talking about Ryan Brazier and what I thought of him. He had some really good AAA numbers, but when he's been in the majors, I mean, he's done well, but his his underlying numbers are not as impressive. So it was kind of like, eh, this, you know, he's not going to, obviously he's not going to not allow a run forever, but... Yeah, I think Brazier's a mid-relief guy. I think he's probably the most expendable part of this bullpen right now, though. So um, I don't know if he has minor league options, because if the Red Sox acquire a reliever, I was doing some mental gymnastics in my head, and I was like, who's going to go? Like, they just sent down Brandon Workman, which kind of pissed me off, and probably you too. Um, so then it was like, man, would it be Hector Velasquez, who's you know been a really good spot starter he's been a really good uh, long man or would it be ryan brazier so that'll that'll be interesting to watch and again we'll talk about that more in detail later but yeah so let's segue here for a second um the red sox picked up another victory on saturday 10 to 4 
Uh, they put up a 10 spot. That was awesome. Uh, Rick Porcello struggled a bit in this one. Five and two-thirds of four and run ball. He struck out five and walked one. He actually threw 23% curveballs, which was the highest percentage of curveballs he had thrown in any game this season. So Tyler Thornburg's throwing more curveballs. And so is Rick Porcello. And I think someone else that I mentioned here already, or I'm about to mention, but yeah, the Red Sox are throwing more curveballs. I don't know if it's a team-wide thing, but three guys have talked about, you know, they're they're ramping up their Uncle Charlie usage. So that's interesting. Um, but JDM hit his league-leading 30-second home run in this game. Um, I think Jose Ramirez is 30 now, unless he hit one today or the day before. Um, so he's the second closest. And the team combined for eight extra base hits, eight XPHs, and they had two triples by Jackie Bradley Jr., which was another clutch hit, and Eduardo Nunez, who actually had two extra base hits in that game. Um, the sad part was Raphael Devers. Oh, Dave, Raphael Devers was injured. Uh, he had a hamstring injury is what they called it. Uh, you wrote an article about this for the site. Um, uh, so, But he should be able to come back whenever he's retroactive, which should be yesterday. So 10 days, they expect him to come back. But do you think this creates more of a dire need for an infielder? And what are your thoughts on Devers going down? Um, I don't think it creates too much of a dire need or really any need at all for that matter, just because um, it's not a major injury. Devers said he uh, expects to be active right as soon as he can. He said, you know, if he were allowed to, he'd probably be able to come back even sooner. But Cora's played a couple with these guys all season. That's not changing now. So it really doesn't change my dynamic of that. I still would like us to acquire another, like, utility infielder, maybe like Adrian Beltre or someone along those lines if you can get him for the right price. But it, it would still be a nice luxury and not a pressing need in my mind. Yeah, and I now hear that people are talking about Adrian Beltre potentially coming to the Red Sox. There's been a lot of chatter about that, especially when Devers immediately went down with the injury, but uh, he has a no-trade clause. I th- would like to think he would waive it because the Red Sox are a team he's familiar with. They're in a very inviolable spot. Um, so it's it's uh, But it's a dubious fit because when Devers comes back and he plays third base, eh, where does Beltre go? Like I don't think he's a bench guy at this point of his career. Um, he's probably better for DH slash third base, and you know we have a really good designated hitter in JD Martinez. Um, you could shuffle like the Brewers did when they acquired Mike Mustakas earlier this week and try to move Devers to second. I don't, I don't know how this dynamics would work. Uh, what, what would you think about this Adrian Beltre? Um, like where would where, where would Beltre figure into this mix? Yeah, I think um, I. I'm going to have to disagree slightly with you. I think at age 37, Beltre would accept the role of sort of being like a platoon, like a platoon bench, bench guy sort of okay. rotated into the lineup because one, he has health injuries. I think he knows as much as anyone that if he tried to play every game from here to the end of the road, he wouldn't make it most likely, especially when you factor in this team's going to be playing in October. So I, I think Beltre would be accepting of a somewhat bench role. You'd probably have to, maybe go back to what you're doing earlier in the season where you rotate the outfield where JD plays a little bit of left, Beltre plays a little bit of DH, Devers gets a little bit of a break in there too and sort of have like Mookie and Benny and JD play as many games as humanly possible, but some rotation of Jackie, Devers, and Beltre would play like two of them play at a time and the other one takes a day off, which with Devers' health injuries, I'd, I'd be cool with that. Same with Beltre's health injuries. So... I think um, you could definitely make it work if you wanted it to. Yeah. Now, like, I I just I feel like I have this, like, perception about Beltre where I still think he's a very productive player, and I think the numbers kind of show that this year, too, especially last year. He was, like, a 2-3 win player. Um, but I think maybe he would be willing to be more of a, you know, kind of bench guy, but... I don't know. I think, like, push comes to shove. Beltre endeavors are very close to value at this point. I don't know if you see that. I don't know maybe if I'm the only one in the world who sees this, but I still think Beltre is a very good Major League Baseball player, and I think that he would represent one of the better options uh, for the Red Sox if they do acquire him. And again, you never, having too much depth, never a bad thing. Um, they should definitely, like, and they are looking for infield help. But I don't think Beltre has that flexibility as much as some other guys, especially because second base right now is probably more of a need because you got Holt and Nunez there, and like bringing in Beltre wouldn't really cover that. Um, they would still have to play Holt or Nunez at second, and Holt's done fine. Holt's done very well. 
Um, but I think they want to upgrade him. So I feel like it, you can't get two two infielders at this point. Um, and that just if, if, that kind of depends on if you think they should acquire a second baseman or not. So that's just all of you about your personal preference. Um, and then the emergence of gold glove third baseman, Blake Swihart, kind of throws that for a loop too. Because uh, he's... He's a hot corner machine there. Uh, he did very well today, and again, we'll talk about that soon. But yeah, uh, do you have anything yeah, to add? I mean, to if it? he can, if he can keep doing that, maybe like I wouldn't be on the trade for Beltre, and I'm not even on the trade for Beltre that much. I'm just thinking it would be cool if we did, but we don't have to. But I mean, if Blake Flyhart is actually that good at third, I mean, you don't like don't do it. Don't give up resources, but you know, one game. Yeah, I don't think he's actually that good. I think he's got a cannon for an arm, my God. But no, I don't think he's. Uh, I don't think he's that good. But yeah, he's definitely hitting. And we'll talk. We got actually had a Twitter question about Swihart and getting him in the lineup that we'll talk about once we talk about his game today. Um, but we'll move on here. Um, so today and on Saturday, the bullpen was phenomenal, which was in stark contrast to what it was on Thursday and Friday. Uh, Heath Hembury came in sixth inning in relief for Rick Porcello, pitched a third of an inning, and he got out of the jam. Just like Heath Hembury has done, summer Heath Hembury is the best thing in the world. He's been amazing. We talked about it last week. We won't talk about it much again. Um, but yeah, he's been a beast, and he pitched a 7-2, scoreless. And then Tyler Thornburg, again, he went in the eighth inning of 6-4 game. So it was a very, you know, crucial high leverage spot. Maybe besides the game before, the highest leverage situation he's been in, which kind of illuminates to me that Cora is getting more trust in him, and that's a good thing because and he's proving himself. Um, but yeah, Thornburg and Henry were great, and then Joe Kelly, Joseph Kelly Jr. He came in, or is he senior? No, he's junior. Uh, Joseph Kelly came in and he uh, pitched a scoreless ninth. Two strikeouts, two weak ground balls. One of the strikeouts actually like dribbled away from Sandy Leone, so someone got on base because of that. That was the only base runner he allowed. He looked serviceable for the first time, I think, since the beginning of June, so that was incredible. Um, and we talked about Joe Kelly uh, last week or the week before, but I have some supplemental information that I would like to share with everyone, if that's okay with everyone who's listening. Um, you don't really have a say in this. So I'm going to say it anyway. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote about this. I wrote about what's wrong with Joe Kelly on RedSoxAndFilter.com. Go check that out. Um, so this was before the game. He pitched on Saturday. Uh, so he's like usually been pitching four seamers around 60% of the time, and he's found tremendous success with that. Um, this goes back from like 2016, but then in the month of July, he decided that I will no longer pitch 60% fastballs and I'm going to cut it in half before this game on Saturday, his, his four seam fastball percentage was close to 30%, literally in half. So, like, that's concerning. Like, you're changing yourself that much. I get June was horrible, and he did pitch 60% fastballs then, but changing yourself that much when you have a heater that, like, reaches 100, and it's what set everything else up, was probably not a good decision. So, yeah, he uh, then used the heater 78% time on Saturday. He read my article, probably, and he's like, wow, Patrick, you're right. And he pitched 78% heaters, and he had a very himself a very good game. Uh, Dave, do you have any supplemental information you'd like to share about Joe Kelly or some thoughts? Yeah, no, you covered the Kelly thing just like better than I ever could, but I really do like seeing him going back to the fastball. He can hit 100 with it, so when he has control of it, it's a great thing. The problem with Kelly has always been control, so if he can just keep throwing it where he wants it to go, that's going to be really the key to the rest of his season. Really, when he gets streaky, from my eyes, is when he starts throwing a fastball and it goes God knows where, because then he doesn't trust it. And the rest of his pitches are good, but they're not great like the fastball can be. Yeah. So they sort of all play off that. If he doesn't have the fastball working, really everything kind of falls apart. And his command just in general is streaky. So if he can keep the fastball doing what he wants it to do, he can go back to being a really good late inning arm for that. But, you know, again, we have one sample and Kelly has been inconsistent really throughout his whole career. If you have the good one down the stretch, that's just another that's another deep arm that makes your bullpen even deeper, but you don't know if you're going to have, have that until you just throw him out there a bit more, see what he's got. 
Yeah, and they threw him out in a game that was a blowout, and that's a perfect opportunity to get him in there at this point. Um, and he did very well. And so I was kind of surprised he actually didn't go on a mysterious phantom DL stint after the Nate Evoldi was acquired to make room. But they actually demoted Brandon Workman. But we're actually going to talk about the Nate Evoldi trade because that happened. I would love to say that was Wednesday, and we recorded our last podcast Sunday. So this may be old news, but Nathan Evoldi is now a Boston Red Sox, and he pitched very well today. Seven innings, you know, zero earned runs, five strikeouts. Cannot ask much more for the, the, than that, than what he provided. Um, but what what did you think about this move, Dave? What were your opinion? So when the move was first made, I, I was in favor of it. Once Eddie went down, you really needed a fourth starter because as great as Johnson's been, it's, you know you really don't want to go into the playoffs with the plan being Brian Johnson is my fourth starter. So you really need to get Evaldi. And you, know, you don't know when Eddie's coming back. In theory, he could be back by the end of the year, but you don't know that. And historically, when we've tried bringing Eddie back from injury a bit faster than we should have, he's struggled. So I was definitely in the camp of getting a fourth starter. Getting a half year of Evaldi for Jalen Beek seemed like a fair price to me, considering where this team was going to be. I only saw Beek's ceiling as like a spot starter, basically what Brian Johnson is. So it's not like you're giving up that much for him. But um, you know, outside of Johnson, or, or I'm sorry, outside of uh, all of that, when you look at his start today, he was absolutely phenomenal. I loved what I saw out of him. The zero earned runs is a little deceiving because Jackie's. Uh, Jackie's defense saved a run or saved a huge double. That inning could have gone completely differently without that catch. But regardless, he had a great start. Uh, let's hope to see more of it. I really love how he's a guy that just attacks, attacks the strike zone, doesn't give up walks. Um, you know, that's my favorite type of pitching to watch the guys that go directly at the plate. So I really think we got a good deal here. It makes the rotation a lot deeper, makes us in the playoffs a lot scarier especially if you can get Eddie back for the playoff run, because then you have four really good options on the rotation. You've got a deeper bullpen because one of those five starters is going to move to the bullpen. So I really like the move, and I really think it's going to be a good one moving forward. Yeah, I was so smitten with the native Oldie trade, because I don't know if you remember last week, but I wrote an article titled uh, Who the Red Sox Should Basically Target for the Rotation Woes, and native Oldie was the first guy I listed. And then it happened, and I was like, wow, this is cool. Um, native Oldie is, you know, he's come back from a major injury this year, and he's proven himself. He's got good strikeout numbers, doesn't walk a lot of guys, as you said, go right at the plate, and his fastball is, I think Alex Spear of the Boston Globe tweeted this, it's the third highest um, per um, among active MLB starters, um, or qualified, not active, qualified MLB starters. I think that's right, maybe you want to double check that, but he throws some serious cheese. Um, Shout out to Dennis Eckersley. He throws some serious cheese. And, uh, yeah, he uh, he is a good pitcher. He's had a bit of a home run problem this year. But his ex-FIP, his expected FIP, if a home run rate were normalized at a league average, is 3.49 coming into today. And all of his numbers this year are inflated by a horrendous start. Um, I think it was two starts before this most uh, recent one. And it was with the Rays, obviously, and he let up like eight earned runs in two innings. Like before that, people were like proclaiming he was the best starter on the market. So I think the fact that he had that bad outing worked in the Red Sox favor because his numbers don't look as sexy. So they were able to get him uh, from a cheaper cost. I'm not saying Jalen Beeks was completely cheap because I think Jalen Beeks, um, those AAA numbers, I mean, they mean something. They're not completely meaningless. Um, he was really, really, really good with Paul Duckett. The thing that got him is he doesn't have great, I would say, he doesn't have wonderful stuff. Like, he really does not have good stuff, and that's kind of been the reason he's, you know, struggled at the major league level. Uh, it's not transitioned well. So, yeah, Jalen Beeks um, was a little bit of a steep price because the, the Rays get him. He's controllable. He's young. He's shown he's had success um, in Pawtucket, which is like, you know, the closest level to the majors. I didn't even need to say that. That was so obvious. But, yeah, Jalen Beeks is, um, is a bit of a price, but I like this trade. 
I really do. And I think um, I was listening to the Sock Spear podcast. Um, I think they just came out with one listen to their first episode a little bit. And they compared Jalen Beeks to Alan Webster. Or actually, it was Henry Owens. And then I compared him in my head to Alan Webster. These guys who have these good upper minor league numbers, and then they don't really transition well into the majors for whatever reason. I think Henry Owens had slightly better stuff, but I really like the comparison because, you know, both of them kind of burnt out at the major league level. Um, we'll see what Beeks does in Tampa Bay they're a very unconventional organization they'll probably use him as a starter slash long reliever so he will be um, he probably fits in well with them he's kind of like a Wilmer Font-esque pitcher so that'll be fun to watch um, to see how he develops because I'm still rooting for the guy he seems like a nice guy I don't know him but he seems nice um, yeah he got so shelled today though he did <laughs> he got shelled yesterday was it today or yesterday I think it was. I think it was. I think it was both actually. Um, oh really? I, I know he got shelled earlier in the week. He got shelled today against the O's. I saw it on Twitter. I don't have it in front of me, but I think it was like three innings, seven like runs, runs, or something yeah, like it, that. Or it was crap. Maybe it was three innings, five runs. I don't know. Yeah. All I know is it wasn't pretty. No, I think his ERA is like up to fourteen now. Fourteen. So that's uh, that's Jalen Beeks. But happy to have Native Oldie in in the rotation and this is exactly what the Red Sox needed they didn't need to break the bank for somebody they just needed someone who was like a decent mid to back of the rotation starter and who could fill in and be serviceable because they have three guys in Rick Porcello, David Price um, Chris Sale, why did I not say Chris Sale first, who are elite and oh my god, Chris, uh, Rick Porcello and David Price aren't elite but Chris Sale is elite and Rick Porcello and David Price are really good Eduardo Rodriguez is really good so Evoldi just kind of just adds this depth to it which they sorely missed for a lot of the season that's why drew pomerantz is pitching guys because the depth um so yeah i'm happy to have native oldie on board um but did you think that brandon workman should have been the guy who got the demotion to make room for oldie dave i do not know um i would not have gone workman down as you and everyone who listens to this knows i have a uh little bit of a thing for Brandon Workman. I really believe in the guy. I think he has phenomenal stuff. I think he can be a really great reliever. And I disagree with the decision to send him down. I understand that there's a lot of good talent in this bullpen, most of which don't have options. So I get the thinking of why he should. But honestly, what I would have done is I would have sent Palm to the DL. I get they want to really try to stick with him as a starter. But he doesn't have velocity. He doesn't have any of the things that made him good last year he's there's clearly something bothering him either mechanically or more likely physically because he's dropped a good you know three four miles an hour off his fastball and he's just he's hitable he's not going to be that guy i would have sent him to the dl but if not him probably probably kelly like you said but you know kelly had that really good outing i thought brazier had options i would have thought about that but i probably would have strayed away from that but no, I probably would have had Palm go on a on a DL stint to sort of figure it out because he only came back for the one start. Yeah, it's not like this is a guy who's been healthy all year. No, no, it would have made sense. It would have been an easy story to sell. Um, I would have. I I'm really stoked, and I'm not stoked, but I'm very curious to see Drew Pomeran's stuff play up in the bullpen role because he has a good knuckle curve. I mean, last year it was like one of the best in the league and he has a decent fastball to play off with. So like I was, I really want him to kind of do bad this next start. I mean, obviously I don't want to do him bad, but I kind of do because I would love to see him being transitioned into a bullpen role because I, I think he could be an instrumental weapon there. So um, I think shorter innings would allow him his fastball to get a little faster. Um, and I think it could, kind of fix some of these problems he had we would probably won't have to worry about Pomeranz after this because he is a free agent so this is probably like the last two months you'll see Palm in the Red Sox uniform um so I'm I'm thinking bullpen would be a really nice option for him but if I I don't think Brandon yeah I, I, that was a tangent I don't think uh, Brandon Workman should have been demoted I was actually kind of shocked when I saw it I was like whoa like I I said that like in the middle of a coffee shop or where people were around me um I kind of thought it was going to be someone going on a Phantom DL. As I said, I thought it was going to be JK, Joe Kelly. I think that would have been also an easy sell. Um, Palm just came back. I feel like that would be kind of mean to put him back on the DL. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, Joe Kelly should have, you know, he, he's been awful, and that definitely could have um, helped him. Um, but it seems like maybe he's figured it out. That was one inning. That's a very small sample size. So we'll see. Um, but, yeah, of only through 82 pitches today, he won seven innings. Dave, did you think that they should have let him go even further? 
Yeah, I would have had him go the eighth, um, just because he was pitching so good. His pitch count was only at 82, and um, Barnes and Kimbrell have both been worked really hard this series, so I was surprised to Alex Cora didn't let Evaldi go. You had a three-run lead, so pull him at the first sign of trouble, but it's not like, you know, if Evaldi gives off a leadoff home, we've got a tie game. I would have let him go a little bit farther. He was being absolutely dominant, and that way, if he makes it through the eighth, you don't have to work Barnes, who's been really... Really, you know, really been worked hard these last few games. With the Phillies coming into town and the Yankees after that, I'd I'd much rather see my bullpen as fresh as possible against you know two pretty good teams. The Yankees yeah. being one of the league's elite. So, um, yeah, I would have had Evaldi try to stick it out through the eighth. Yeah, I think we are lucky though with these upcoming series against these, I guess, juggernauts and the Phillies and Yankees. The Phillies aren't really a juggernaut, but they have that weird day in between the series on a Wednesday where the Red Sox have a rest day. So maybe that will help the bullpen kind of, you know, be fresh and ready for the Yankee series, but not the Philly series. And I agree. I was surprised because Eovaldi was at 82 pitches, but, you know, I'm not going to question Alec. Alex Cora's conservation strategies they've worked wonders this year he's done phenomenal with them of keeping his guys fresh and you know you see what's happening with Chris Sale um, obviously we'll see how that progresses later into the season but yeah um, his innovative strategies from a health perspective of keeping his guys health uh, healthy um, I'm not going to question it he did his work and uh, yeah I was I was surprised a little bit but I understand where it came from um, and we alluded to the JBJ catch, but we haven't talked about it. And the, my thoughts are as follows. Holy freaking crap. Wow. He, uh, he made possibly the catch of the year. That was insane. It was off the bat of the Twins catcher, Bobby Wilson, who hit it to left center. It looked like JBJ had absolutely no chance of this thing. It was a screw. It was, almost, it was kind of a line drive, but it was it was falling fast. And he went in head first, and like he banged up against the wall. He caught it just before it hit the ground, just full out dove. And oh my gosh, it was it was a thing to behold. If you have not seen it, please go look it up because it was incredible. Um, yeah, and this is just, it just give JBJ a gold glove. Give it to him. Uh, Dave, what were your thoughts on the catch? Yeah, I couldn't believe it when it happened. I uh, was watching the game. I saw it go into the corner. I saw Jackie going for it, and my, my initial thought, they hit it so hard. I thought, well, maybe with Jackie's arm, you can hold that to a single. Probably not. It's probably a double, but, you know, maybe, just maybe. And then he stretches out, dives catches it somehow holds on i was I, I didn't believe my eyes were seeing that of all of jackie's amazing catches that's probably top of the list just because i've never seen anything close to that and i've got a bit of a personal beef with Statcast right now because yeah they tweeted out a link of that and they said there was a 42 percent no way like probability of that no way there's like, no way the flash wouldn't be able to catch that 42 percent <laughs> of the time i stole that joke from pete abraham shout out buddy but anyway like i don't know how you possibly think that you know that's a you know a four-star catch they get called it that's like a 10-star catch out of five it was absolutely amazing and it just shows why you, you stick with him through the bad times because He's hitting great now, but even when he's cold, he can make plays like that yes. every single day, and it's really something to behold. Yeah, and I, I think the thing that bothered me about what Stack has tweeted out, they were like saying, oh my gosh, JBJ's a superhero. He caught this at a 42% catch probability. Did they really think that no one was going to call them out for that? Like, I feel like that was uh, that was a not a dumb tweet, but I think it was a controversial tweet, and it kind of made people question um, their subjective defensive metrics a little bit. I think Alex Spear had a very smart thought about why it was 42%. I think it's very hard to account for the wall and its dimensions, which kind of like, you know, in that tight space made it a lot harder for him to catch, but maybe StatCast does not have that um, configured into whatever calculations it runs. Um, so I would look up what Alex Spear said on Twitter for more information. Um, but no way, 42%, that is that is like a 2%. That's not even 2%. No one would make that catch besides Jackie Bradley Jr. He sprinted from the time that the 
bat, the ball left the bat, and he was he just it was a perfect route. The efficiency was awesome, and the 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 dive at the end, five out of five, ten out of ten, hundred out of a hundred. If he takes you, even one bad step, that's a double. Yeah, exactly, that's a double. That's an extra base hit, and we might not be talking about Nate Evoldi having a shutout game. So like, uh, yeah, it was it, oh, it was a great thing. It was a it was a thing of beauty. And one thing I. One thing I don't think Jackie gets enough credit for is with all of his catches, he's usually diving into a wall, but he really finds a way. And it just goes yeah. to speak to his awareness because I think it's more awareness than luck. He finds a way to always land on the wall in a part that like makes it as comfy and unpainful as possible. Like He really like knows exactly where every square inch does. of that ballpark is, where he is relative to everything. Because when you look at the roll, uh, like this last catch, when he rolled, he ended up rolling such that he was able to not injure himself the whole wall just really expand the impact so it wasn't like the wall was really hitting him in only one spot and you've seen it a few times um back in the yankees series when jackie robbed that home run on the sale game he basically did the same thing and he's been doing it almost his whole career he just he's a master of it defensively there's nobody i'd rather have yeah like his instincts and awareness just about his surroundings is like second to none I the, like the thing is I feel like some people might have been able to get to it, but I feel like there's no way they wouldn't have injured themselves in the process. Like you said, JBJ braced himself for this impact just to like lessen the blow, and he didn't get injured because that would not been worth it at that point. He made the catch, he stuck the landing, and man, what what a catch! Um, another guy who did very well today is uh, Blake Swihart. Um, I would say a month ago we were, we were calling his demise as a Red Sox, and and now we're here. He's doing very well. He had two hits in this game. It's his nine-game hitting streak now. I think his OPS is over 600, and it was like 300 or 400, so it's climbed up significantly. He's starting to get consistent playing time, and he even made an appearance at third base, which was shocking, but, you know, it, it worked out today because he was playing gold glove caliber defense uh dave what were your thoughts about him playing the hot corner today yeah so when it first came out in the lineup i'm like oh boy are we that desperate without devers but um you know i saw it was a rest day for bogarts and i'm like okay holds it short flyhearts at third you really don't trust lynn's bat i get it i guess i didn't like the idea but you know whatever and then i saw cora said something about you know the twins hit it at the third hit ground balls at the third baseman roughly two percent of the time and Evaldi never lets that happen like literally never so i'm like okay so the ball is basically never going to go over there so i guess swihart's questionable defense and considerably better bat makes up for uh lynn's better defense and questionable bat but the twins i want to think it might have been in their game plan to attack swihart at the heart at the hot corner because they were hitting a few balls at him like they were definitely doing that intentionally, and he's just stepping up to the. He was stepping up every time one got hit to him. Uh, earlier in the game, there was a weak chopper, and Swihart charged it. I, I think he barehanded it, or if he didn't, he. It was like a really bang bang play. The guy was safe at first, but like Swihart made a rocket of a throw, and it was a lot closer than yeah. it had any right to be. And um, er, then later on in the game, he had a double play and on a really hard hit ball right at him. And he he looked like a catcher out there. Uh, it was low to the ground, so he got down and gave a weird hop. But Swire was able to react to catching in his gut throat second, like in a second. He looked like he'd been doing it for years. It was fantastic. Yeah, it really was. And I saw the same tweet you did about, like, the Twins never hit balls to third base. Avoldi doesn't allow balls to third base. And then he got a lot of opportunities at third base in that game. So, yeah, I think there was some intent behind the Twins' uh, strategy right there. And, and I think, you know, they, they weren't wrong for testing him. Um, but, yeah, so when Swihart made that first play, and it, he didn't even convert it, but he, yeah, as you said, he went into shallow left field. He had to make, like, a backhanded play. And then he set himself, planted his feet, and threw an absolute rocket to Steve Pierce and he was barely safe and that's when I was like whoa like holy crap he just did that I'm like and then that's that's the arm of a guy who's used to throwing it from uh from home plate to second on field (laughs) so but like it was just it was it was awesome and then he made the double play and I think he made a couple other plays and 
good for Blake Swihart. Um, so Pete Zizinski, who I actually worked with at Bosox Injection back in 2014, shout out to him. He asked us a question on Twitter for the podcast. He said, uh, how did the Red Sox continue to integrate Swihart into the lineup? Dave, what are your thoughts? All right, so after seeing today, until Devers gets back, Blake Swihart's your third baseman. I really don't see any way around that. Like, Holton Nunez can go back to doing what they would normally do, platoon second. Um, in the 10-day DL report I wrote up for Red Sox Unfiltered, I said, you know, chances are Nunez going to play third most of the time. Holt's going to play second. But no, throw that out the window. Swihart is your third baseman until Devers gets back. Once he does get back, I think Swihart's your main catcher. Like, love you, Sandy. Everyone here knows that I love Sandy Leone, but you just can't keep Swihart out right you now. He's, he's a monster with the bat right now. He's going to cool off initially. That's just natural. He's not going to hit 600th the rest of the way, but this is the guy the Red Sox thought they had in the prospect for the longest time. Yeah. And um, I really think this is going to keep up to an extent. I think he's has the highest ceiling as a offensive catcher for any of the guys that's really not up for debate. He's starting to realize that ceiling and the few times he has played catcher this year, cause he's had a few starts uh, since Moreland's come back into the lineup. He's really played not great defense. I'm not going to call it that, but I could, I didn't notice anything one way or the other. So he's been remarkably average, which for a guy whose biggest question as a catcher was his defense. And it was just like playing out ugly at times in 2015 and 2016. If he can play average defense and bring a good bat, I mean, that is everything you want the catcher position to be. All of a sudden, you go from our catcher situation being one of the worst in baseball to being, you know, about league average, maybe a little bit better. That is a huge improvement at this time of the year. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what happens when Christian Vasquez comes back, and I think it'll be interesting to see um, if this, like, I know it's a small sample, kind of deters the Red Sox from going after an infield upgrade. Um, I think the Dever initially people thought, oh yeah, they definitely need uh, an infield upgrade, especially with Devers going down. And there was it was very nebulous at the time; people didn't know um, what extent he injured his hamstring, how long he'd be out. But the news seems pretty good; he seems to be back soon. And then Blake Swihart seems capable of playing the hot corner, and I think uh, second base is probably just as you know easy. I don't know; they're they're different positions, but they're about the same on the on defensive spectrum. So I think that Swihart might be your answer if, if you're going to upgrade it in the infield. Again, you can never have much too much depth, so maybe Ian Kinsler or Dozier would be a nice upgrade. But yeah, um, to get him into the lineup, I think he has to you know, displace Leon or Vasquez, one of the two, um, to get at-bats to be more of the backup catcher, the main backup catcher, because the Red Sox have a pretty good infield. They're, he's not going to be you know, replacing anyone on the consistent basis in the outfield. Um, so the main way that I see is, like I think you just said, um, you know, either Vasquez or Leon not getting as many reps. And if I had to pick, it would be Vasquez um, to not, you know, I don't know if he has options that would be interesting i don't think he does but he does um uh, no i don't i I know for a fact he doesn't because last year going into the uh regular season the big thing was like we still had the vasquez leon uh swihart dilemma and if anything it was more of a dilemma back then because leon was coming off that fantastic 2016 and remember everyone it was a foregone conclusion swihart was going to lose that battle because he was the only one with options so Vasquez has no options. I think I agree with you, by the way. I definitely think, um, assuming Swihart, you know, can keep hitting, maybe not at this clip, but just hit, you know, as well as he's capable yeah. of. If he can, um, like, I think it's going to be Leon for the number two, just because he's a better defensive catcher. Um, defensive ERA isn't my, or catcher ERA isn't my favorite stat in the world, but Leon has the best in the league. So pitchers really matter. like throwing to him. I think he becomes the backup. And I think Vasquez is just going to sort of play the role Swihart was early of just emergency catcher. And he's on a pretty team-friendly contract. So for a guy of Vasquez's skill, considering there's no good catchers league-wide, so I think you hold on to him for the rest of the year. But assuming, you know, Vasquez, Leon, or, I mean, Swihart keeps this up, you know, Leon's a fine enough backup. I think you swap Vasquez or somebody in the offseason. Yeah, yeah, I definitely could see that because, I mean, Swihart is uh, 
doing very well right now. Um, my thought is if they do get Vasquez back and maybe they acquire another bat, they still want to get like a Dozier or a Kinsler or whomever they want to target. Maybe Eduardo Nunez and it's his time to, to depart from the Red Sox, although he's hitting a little bit uh, quietly lately. So um, that'll be interesting. But I feel like, you know, maybe Swihart's value is also high. So maybe they're considering uh, selling him well. He's doing very well. I wouldn't do it. I'm smitten with Blake Swihart right now. The Red Sox should go all in. And I think Swihart um, gives them the a really good chance of doing that. Um, not by himself, but I think he's uh, could be a pretty pretty decent piece to that puzzle so Blake Swihart um, I want him to find at bats I don't want it to be a situation where they were you know he was not getting consistent at bats like in the beginning of the season uh, until Hanley Ramirez got traded and he you know he was, he was he was bad because he like came in like twice a week and in like really not great situations it would be whether it be like a pinch hit a spot start in the outfield and he just never could get his feet wet and he can never like you know get in a rhythm so having him um, getting into rhythm now and we sh- we kind of see what the kind of potential there is and I wrote for I think this week or the week before about Blake's Wyart and you know how he was getting a little unlucky like his expected Woba based on how he actually hit the ball suggests that he should have been better than what he was doing and lo and behold now he's doing better so Blake's Wyart yeah I'm a fan um but as we said earlier, Matt Barnes also pitched in this game. He had the eighth best, but I actually had a stat that I tweeted out on Red Sox Unfiltered. Matt Barnes has the eighth best F wards before today's game among qualified relievers coming, uh, and that's ahead of Craig Kimbrell. It was at 1.5. That is insane. Do you have any thoughts on that, Dave? Yeah, so pitcher, pitching war, especially for relievers, relievers yeah. is my favorite stat to go it's to just because like, those numbers are also close. Even the guys that make war say you shouldn't use it for sample sizes this close. Yeah. And it's just, it's a little too subjective for me, but um, I actually looked up a few other numbers, and I wrote an article earlier in the year saying that, you know, Matt Barnes is actually good, and essentially the people that don't feel comfortable with him are basically holding on a little too tight to 2015 and 2016 Barnes and haven't been looking at how this guy's been improving every single year he's been in the league. So right now, Matt Barnes, and this doesn't reflect today's action, obviously. You know, the internet doesn't update that fast. But before, prior to today's game, Barnes had a 2.4 ERA, 1.9 FIP, 1.09 whip, and he was striking out 13.8 guys per nine innings. His walk rate's a little ugly. That's just kind of part of the deal with him and why, to me, he's not a true eighth-inning guy yet. I'd like to see a few fewer walks. But he's been, really, he's been everything the Sox could have asked for this year. He, outside of Kimbrell, he's probably been their most consistent reliever. And, um, yeah, I really am a fan of Matt Barnes. He's growing on me a lot. And even high-leverage situations, he's improved in that, because that used to be the big knock against him. But he's still not great in high-leverage situations. Like, he's a little bit worse than he is normally. But he's been pretty reliable across the board, regardless of the situation you throw him in. If he can continue developing like this, well, for the rest of the season, you've got a really good reliever. But if he keeps developing, because his numbers across the board have improved every single year he's been in the majors, if he can keep improving, I think he's your setup guy next year. Oh, yeah, I, I think he definitely could be. He could even uh, end up being the Red Sox closer next year. I don't want to be that fortuitous or, you know, say something but or insinuate anything. Um, but Matt Barnes could be a very pivotal role for the back end of the Red Sox bullpen in 2019. Obviously, this is pure conjecture. It means nothing. My opinion means nothing. But, yeah, Matt Barnes is doing very well right now. And as you said, he's been improving every year. And war, F4, especially for relievers, is very subjective. And, it you know, it doesn't mean that much. But it kind of does speak volumes to like how good this guy has been this year he's between sean doolittle and felipe velasquez two closers who are awesome and like the way he's pitching he kind of deserves to be in that company and like the value he's produced he deserves to be in that company so good for matt barnes um yeah they they've desperately needed him recently so that's good um but we're actually done breaking down that series and we're actually going to move into like trade deadline stuff here so the trade deadline as we've said is going to be on tuesday july 31st it ends at 4 p.m the red Sox apparently have some work to do um dave i just want to ask you this question just straight up who should they trade for who should dave nebraska trade for Okay, so who should they trade for? That's a loaded question. It's I wrote an article about maybe a month back. I was a little too trade happy. I just wanted to get right into it. And in it, I called for the first person that I called for was Jed Lowry for second base because I said 
you know, the A's, they're going nowhere fast. They're probably going <laughs> to be selling. Lowry's in the last year of his deal. You could probably get him pretty cheap, and he's having a great year. Well, since then, the Rays are one game out of the second wild card spot. They're not selling. They're going all in on this season. So throw that plan out the window. Uh, the best guy left on second base, because I'm of the opinion that second base isn't that big of a need. Like, it's yeah. not a, like we're not strong there by any means, but considering the state of our farm system, I really don't think it's worth overspending for a second baseman when offense is certainly not this team's problem. That being said, I think the only guy I'd really go for is probably Dozier of the Twins. Um, he's having a relatively bad season. It's still an upgrade on what we're currently spitting out at second base, but I think the Twins would probably sell him for a low price just because he's not having his best season. And even if you can't get Dozier, because um, I really think everyone else on the second base market is performing about as well as you'd expect them to, and that would sort of drive up the price a little bit. Yeah. Um, Outside of that, I'd, honestly, I'd feel comfortable uh, waiting out Brandon Phillips. He got hit on the he got hit on the wrist the other day, but he should be better. He struggled in Pawtucket a little bit, but when you look at his numbers throughout his career, um, he's 37 years old now, I think. But mm-hmm. it, throughout his entire major league career, he's mostly been the same guy. Age doesn't really slow him down. I think he will get ready for the majors sooner rather rather than later, and. Um, I think once he's up here, given a few major league at bats to see major league pitching again, I think he could be a pretty decent upgrade from what Eduardo Nunez is giving you. So I'm okay with waiting for that. Um, if you get Dozier, great, because there's probably not going to be too many teams trading for second baseman, at least in the American League, because the Yankees, they're set with Torres. Uh, the Astros have Altuve. The the A's have Lowry, so, you know, there's really other teams that are really contending right now. Most of them have comfortable answers at second base. It's not like there's a huge demand like there is for relievers. But that being said, unless you're getting a pretty good deal, I'd just rather do without. Yeah, well, at this point, I was actually researching contending teams and their middle infield situations or, like, infield situations in general. Like, even among National League and American League contenders, no, like, most people have gotten their infield guys. The Brewers got Moustakas. They're going to move Shaw to second. The Phillies got Estrubal Cabrera, so they they don't really have a need anymore. Arizona Dimebacks got Eduardo Escobar, so, you know, their need's completely gone. And then you look about it. The Dodgers got Machado. They don't have a need there anymore. Cubs have a very good infield. You got Chris Bryant. You got Addison Russell. You got... Ben Zobers, whoever's playing second right now. Um, so, like, and then who's else? The, the Phillies got their guy. Braves might need a guy, but Hohen Camargo at third base is playing super well, well over what they expected. So they don't need anyone. And then you move into the American League, and like you said, Yankees, Astros, they don't really need a guy. Um, the only other team besides the Red Sox that I can think of who might who are on the contention spectrum and might need to upgrade the middle infield is the Pittsburgh Pirates. And the Pirates are not going to be heavy bidders for a middle infielder when they don't even expect to compete this season. That's just not their M.O. Bob Nutting's not going to do it. So the Red Sox are kind of alone right now, unless the Yankees get more depth because they had weird interest in Machado and they had weird interest in Mike Moustakis, despite having Miguel Andahar, Didi Gregorius, Glibertors, and Greg Bird as their infield. They might you know, push up the market and go after some infield insurance. But, yeah, I think... Um, with Kinsler and Dozier, they're kind of you know going to be dangled because neither the Angels nor the Twins will be competitive, and they're both free agents after this season. Um, Dozier's got a 93 WRC plus. You're not going to have to you know sell as uh, high as you usually would on him. His price is going to be down a little bit, and Kinsler's been average too. And Kinsler would be just as good as Dozier, I think. I think both of them are still pretty good. Um, and if the Red Sox want to go that route, I'm not saying it's necessarily the best move because the Red Sox have some decent infield depth. But as we're going to talk about in, the, in a minute, the Red Sox don't seem to really care about the luxury tax, so you know any kind of monetary restrictions. It's kind of like no holds barred at this point. Um, I do think reliever is a more pressing issue. I think they need to get someone in the bullpen. I think that's non-negotiable. But again, as you said, I think the market's a lot rougher for that. There's always been like the top guys falling off. Um, some interesting guys would be Kirby Yates from San Diego, even Craig Stammen. He's pretty good. Kyle Barenclaw still available from Miami, and then uh, Keon Kella from Texas. So there are certain guys that I like, but it's kind of been thinning. And as the 
trade deadline's gotten closer. Teams are starting to make their moves. Um, but, you know, Dave Dombrowski, I feel like he's been more patient in recent years, and he's just kind of trying to get a good value guy and not give up, you know, a top 10 prospect for, oh, Brad Brock. That was another guy. The Braves just acquired him. Just got that notification on MLB Network. So there goes another guy the Red Sox can't acquire. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we like the fastest like record for like so I know. It's irrelevant. I know that was very relevant. Uh, so um, yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll see what they do in the bullpen market. I think it's definitely their pressing need. I think they will acquire someone, but second base is kind of interesting. That if they get someone there, um, it would kind of create a roster crunch especially when Vasquez comes back. So I don't know if that's more of a headache than it's worth. Um, but, yeah, I think you could definitely upgrade at, at second with Holt and Nunez there. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But reliever, bullpen. Actually, uh, yeah, go ahead. One thing I just thought about, um, with Vasquez coming back, he's not coming back till September. You have a 40-man roster there. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Is that? Oh, wow. Yeah, never mind, Dave. Yeah, I've, yeah, totally. Yeah, okay, okay. So there is room. There is room to be had. Um, and if that were the case, I thought he was coming back like mid-August. Um, yeah, if they wait, and I think they said September mo- most likely. Most likely, even if he's not, I think they tell him make sure you're yeah. really healthy, buddy. So, yeah. <laughs> so no, that changes the game. So I don't know if it makes more of a roster crunch. Thank you for saying that, Dave. Before I, I look like a jerk in front of all these people. So that that was a very intelligent thought. <laughs> you just had there so yeah if they acquire someone it wouldn't be as big of a roster crunch as i thought it would be so um yeah go get a second baseman do it why not um but yeah uh still bullpen priority um so moving away from that i wanted so evan drellich of nbc sports um came out with a report today that said the red Sox are gonna go over the luxury tax threshold the highest penalty bracket of 237 million um so yeah they're gonna be taxed like 62.5 percent on every dollar above um and this is what dave dombrowski's quote um in the article was he said our ownership is totally committed to winning and trying to bring a championship to the organization and our fans you never like to incur a penalty but they we do not want to be a deterrent to making moves that we can think help us win this year so what are your thoughts about this what does it mean for the red sox and do you think money's not a problem anymore well, yeah, I mean, I guess if we're going over it, you know, we are already going to incur every penalty possible. So, you know, well, why, why not go for broke, you know? Uh, go, you know, go for it all. For the longest time, I thought the Red Sox were trying to, like, really stay over, under the luxury tax, the final one. But if we've already broken it, uh, John Henry has a bottomless pit of money. He does. So I really don't think that, like, um, he's going to care too much about 62% of every dollar when he has endless money. And especially considering, you know, he'd probably make it all back in World Series t-shirts if we win it all. So I think uh, this really changes the games in terms of what you can trade for. Now, Pat, you only sent me uh, the article. I hadn't seen it till about just before the game started, so I haven't had time to do too much research on this. But I think this really makes um, guys, like guys that uh, have bigger contracts that other teams don't want to move. It, if I think it really opens it up for us because we Definitely. can give lesser prospects and just say yeah we'll take the whole we'll take the brunt of this contract because we don't really care john henry says we can spend whatever we want not our money and let Dombrowski, you know kind of just burn the money to the ground because who cares who cares so i think it's i think it's really good in that sense um i know uh, just thinking out loud here i know uh, if we go back to the Beltray thing one of the hardest things about shipping him along with the no trade clause was the money is his contract it's pretty huge but if we don't care we can probably just you know send over like you know our you know 15th best prospect say hey give us Beltray and they'll wipe their hands just like that there we go yeah i think a similar thing could happen with a reliever although i don't know too much about um high-priced relievers i've been all my research i've been doing is the uh cheaper lower priced guy because i always thought well we're not going to be able to afford a big one so yeah, I, I don't even know if there's many expensive relievers on the market who are available. 
Um, so, but if like I'm forgetting someone, maybe that opens that up for them to do that. And yeah, Beltray, if, if money was a problem before it's, it's not anymore. So, um, I think John Henry and Tom and Tom Warner and the whole Red Sox brass, they have to have some sort of a, an arbitrary limit set in their head. Maybe not arbitrary, um, where it doesn't make financial sense, but the Red Sox are all in this year and they should be, they're 41 games over 500. They're the best team in baseball right now. And they have a lot of their best players who are looming for you agents, including Craig Kimbrell after this season, Chris Sale and Bogarts after 2019, and Jackie Bradley Jr. and Mookie Betts in 2020. J.D. Martinez also has an opt-out after 2019 season, so there's going to be a lot of big financial decisions coming up, and we did the math in the Red Sox unfiltered group chat the other day, and the Red Sox are like north of $200 million right now in 2019 commitments, so um, I guess maybe this isn't a problem now for the luxury tax, but I'd be curious to see if, if they try to get under it in future years, because, you know, um, as the years progress, you start getting more, you start getting heavier taxes on the dollar. So we'll see how that plays out. But for now, the Red Sox are clear. They reset the tax penalty before last season. So they, you know, they were on a fresh slate. And I think this is, this is just speaks volumes to the fact that they believe in this team and they believe in this, that, that they can win 2018. And they're not afraid to make these moves that'll push them over from, you know, getting eliminated in game seven of the ALCS to winning a World Series. And yeah, I'm, I was kind of happy with it. And as you said, John Henry probably has a bottomless abyss of money. So, um, yeah, he can, he can spend that freely and the next two days will be super interesting to watch, but, um, that's actually going to do it for this episode of the 17th, the 17th episode of the Red Sox Unfiltered podcast. Uh, Dave, do you have any departing thoughts for everybody? Um, no, I think we've covered everything we needed to cover. Uh, once again, 40 500 let's just keep on chugging along big series are coming up the next two so you know let's win them yeah, you got the Phillies and the Yanks, so it should be some tough series. It's going to be competitive. This series the, against the Twins, that was super fun. Like, I think we had played the Orioles and the Tigers and the Blue Jays. They were kind of boring, even though the Red Sox won. But this Twins series got me amped. And the Phillies and Yankees, we got some nice competitions. But um, I think we're still five and a half games. I think the Yankees won today. They had the lead when this podcast started. So, um, yeah. Go Red Sox, and I will. We will see you guys on the next episode of the RSU podcast. Thanks for listening, guys.